Blog Talk Radio. Chuck Morse Fairness Radio with Chuck Morse and Dr. Patrick O'Heaven and Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 p.m. as we launch yet another week of live broadcasting here at Cyber Station USA Radio Network and the Blog Talk Radio. You're welcome to join us at 424-675-6806. That number again is 424-675-6806. And, of course, you can email us as well at FairnessRadio at gmail.com. Let me welcome aboard my co-host, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick, how are you? Well, uh, thank you for welcoming me aboard. I'm um, still a little bit jet-lagged. got back uh, from uh, Providence late last night. A lot of uh, thunderstorms along the way got delayed in the Atlanta airport. We're still waiting. It's a mystery whether or not uh, our regular uh, Monday correspondent, Dave Johnson, is going to make it. I understand that he had two flights canceled on him, and he didn't make the third connection. So we will know. Uh, everybody should stay tuned and find out if Dave's stuck in the air someplace or will actually be with mm-hmm. us. Now, Patrick, I we met up at, at uh, Netroots Nation on Thursday and Friday, did the program live from Netroots Nation. Dave was there as well. And um, Netroots Nation is a gathering of so-called progressive uh, bloggers and and commentators from around the country once a year. Uh, Patrick, I'd love to hear your thumb, your your in a sense your sense of um, where where things are. I mean, after all, I mean Netroots Nation is a good chance to take the pulse of the left. Well, since I'm on the board of Netroots Nation, I'm definitely taking the pulse of it. Uh, um, as First of all, um, operationally, it went off w- without a hitch, mm-hmm. and, and I know that because um, the uh, the person who produces it, one of our staff, Nolan Treadway, is usually really, really tense the whole three days, and you cannot talk to him, and he's running around, and he was just kicked back and talking to people and having a drink, and so you know everything was running smoothly. And uh, the only minor glitch was there was a power outage on um, Saturday afternoon, which lasted for about four minutes, but that was the cities, and everybody kind of laughed about it. So as a conference, it it went very well. It was the biggest conference uh, we've had in seven years, 2,700 people, probably 3,000 when you count all the people who were scholarships, free passes, media, et cetera. The media mm-hmm. coverage wasn't quite as good this year. I didn't. I saw a couple of television stations, and I know NPR did a national piece. We got uh, some newspaper coverage, but I didn't see Fox News there, and they're they're usually there. The um, the mood. <clears throat> yes. Um, there was a lot of debate about the mood. <laughs> there was. People were talking about what mood they should be in. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh-huh. And there was people. There were people of sort of on all sides of that one. Yes, there certainly I mean, I'm, Again, I'm speaking as a complete outsider, but yet I was there. Yeah, you were there. You, you, unfortunately, you weren't able to stay for Van Jones' closing uh, speech. Right. And uh, what, was Van, that, what was that in a nutshell? Well, Van um, really powered everybody up. He, he said, you know, uh, for all those people who are depressed over losing uh, 
the um, the, the recall uh, of uh, Governor Walker in um, in Wisconsin. Don't forget, we did win the Senate. We did recall two senators, so it's not a complete loss. But right. that the Republicans have taught us, the conservatives have taught us over the past 40 years that you're going to win some, you're going to lose some. What counts in the long run is whether or not you build a movement. And then he and laid did out. he sense that there was a um, some sort of a movement coming out of out of Wisconsin? And what, what were were there any comments made about uh, what actually happened there? I mean, after all, Patrick, we've been talking about this now for the past at least year. Right. Well, there's definitely a movement in Wisconsin, uh, and a movement on kind of both sides. That uh, both well, sides sure. have developed a political infrastructure that is unheard of in the state. A number of uh, the people there were not pleased that uh, the president had not gotten in. In fact, the general consensus was that win or lose, the president should have been in there to to support the base and that he made a tactical error by not being in there. You think um, it would have made any difference? Well, I think that's the wrong question. At least that was the wrong question that Van pointed out, that, it, again, it's it's not the winning or losing. Do you build a movement? And if the president had been there, it would have been a boost to the movement. So he felt that that was a strategic tactical error. Others disagreed. They said that uh, he had, you know, the real thing is for him just to stay focused. In general, uh, the power of the net roots uh, actually <clears throat> seemed a lot stronger. The fact that we had the, the largest red um, sign up ever and in i don't know did you go to any of the um the panels i went to one patrick and that was the post-mortem on um on uh, governor walker oh okay well i didn't go to that one so what was the post-mortem what did they say oh well, first of all you gotta welcome, we have to welcome in our radio thank listeners. you thanks so much let's welcome aboard our radio listeners you're listening to fairness radio with chuck and patrick uh, WWPR AM in Tampa Bay, Florida, and KSKQ and FM in Ashland, Oregon. And, of course, our online partners, Blog Talk Radio and Cyber Station USA Radio Network, which is our host station. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. You're welcome to join us, 424-675-6806. That number again is 424-675-6806, fairnessradio at gmail.com. If you'd like to join us by email, We've got legendary talk show host Barry Farber coming up. Uh, this is yours truly, Chuck Morse, along with Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. We're talking about Netroots Nation, which Patrick and I both attended. Patrick's on the board of directors. It's a gathering of left-wingers around the country once a year, and I'm trying to get a sense of, um, you know, you, you make reference to a movement, but where is the movement? Obviously, it's been a movement. It's been a movement since Karl Marx. My question is, what is... What, what, what do they believe? What do they? What, what makes them go at this point? I, I was trying to get a sense of that while there. Now, Patrick, you mentioned to me that um, you asked me about uh, my impressions on the panel I did attend, yeah. which was uh, the postmortem on Scott Walker. And the only the only comment that I thought was really interesting and kind of humorous, other than the fact that one of the panelists compared Fox News to Hitler, which you know that's just typical. I let that go, but. Um, was when one of the panelists said we should this was a victory for us a great victory <laughs> you know it's typical of the left right just declare it a victory too. i mean anybody well, involved in politics does that not necessarily yeah. i mean this this is a real airbrush victory yes yeah, sure and then the guy sitting next to her on the panel kind of he, he a little bit more sober <clears throat> i think especially since he was a wisconsinite <laughs> he said no no this was not a victory in fact 
this whole idea that we picked up, we were able to recall one senator is not really where it's at either, because I can tell you the Democrats are going to lose the Senate in Wisconsin big time coming was this it, November. Was it only one? Yes, it was only okay, one. Patrick. I stand corrected on that. Yeah, and, and that, that he says it would take a miracle for us to hold on to the Senate this November. There are several lost causes. And uh, and by the way, just as a matter of quick correction, when I mentioned this to you at the convention, you said, well, Scott Walker is up for re-election in November, too. That's not true. It's the next Walker year, is yeah, no, he's in yeah. for two and a half years. Okay, right, thank you. Yeah, I mean, this is just yeah. midway through his term. Right. So, you know, just as a, ma- a quick correction. Thank you. But uh, that was the only thing that, that I saw there. I mean, there was a lot of kind of wringing of hands and, you know, kind of a lot of vagaries, really. I mean, this nonsense about that we were outspent, which I think is an insult to the to the voters of Wisconsin. But uh, there was, well, I mean, I mean, because it's I think the vote, true, so why would it be? An well, actually, it's not true. But even well, if it wait, were, wait, 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 what? <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Chuck. No, Come sorry, on. Patrick, but that's a myth. No, the, the, the last spending uh, figures I saw was that Walker spent about thirty million, and the, his opposition in total spent about twenty-five million. But and that sure, I mean, it was the outside spending that. That is including the, not only the outside spending, but all the staff people that practically lived in the state and were paid salaries. Now, in Massachusetts, that's technically viewed as a contribution. I don't know about Wisconsin, and maybe not, but when you have someone that's on the staff of a union or on an organization that is politicking, that is considered a contribution. Sure. I mean, yeah. it, because they're okay. paid. Yeah, right. And so when, if, and if when you, uh, the Koch brothers sent 72 of their staff in, that's considered a contribution to their is. paid. And yeah. it's added, and that's added onto the Walker column. Yeah. But the point is that the, the numbers of staff people that descended on that state uh, were, were were totally swamped the number of people that the Koch brothers sent in, which was about 70, 70 people. And they, you know, they were, you know, you're right. I mean, that that should count for part of their contribution. The point is that if you add up the whole cost, it comes to and this is a, a figure that I can't quote the, the site, the source on, only that I've heard, I heard it said by several talk show hosts. So I will tell you that up front. I'm not able to, to okay. verify it. Right. But the figure is that um, Walker spent about $30 million and, and he got a lot of money pouring in from small donors outside the state, and he had a couple of millionaires. And um, the opposition spent about $25 million. Now, if you take a look at the difference in terms of real money, that's not a big margin when you're talking about these, this kind of money. It was extremely high-expense campaign on both sides. Well, 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 Chuck, since we're going to have to go to a guest pretty soon, uh, I have a news story here from the, the Sacramento Bee quoting federal um, election records saying that the total spent on the campaign was $80 million. Mm-hmm. $44 million was dropped in the uh, – rather that uh, – so, so that's $20 million more than, than you spent, and they quote that uh, supporters of Walker spent the majority of that, and 80% of his funds uh, came from, uh, from, a few, uh, from a few major donors. Now, we haven't right. had time to get into the whole details here, but it also says that they outspent, uh, that the Walker people outspent the recall people about five to seven to one. So after, after, maybe in the second hour we can get into actual facts on this. Right. Not to, and, and again, Patrick, I would contend it doesn't matter. It's an insult to the intelligence of the voters of Wisconsin to, to make that an issue. But we can talk about that, and I want to know the exact figures. Why don't we take a brief break? We'll be back to – you're listening to Fairness Radio 
with Chuck and Patrick. Uh, we'll be joined by Barry Farber when we're back. And we're joined by legendary talk show host Barry Faber. Barry is an American conservative radio host. He's the author, an author, language learning enthusiast. Uh, Talkers Magazine named him the ninth greatest radio talk show host of all times. He's written articles that have appeared in the New York Times, Reader's Digest, Washington Post, Saturday Review. Barry, it is an honor and a privilege to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Chuck, I look upon you as one of the forces that sent a great member of the Obama team to the early showers, and I'm talking about <laughs> Barney Frank. I don't oh, think brother. he likes the threat of real opposition. Well, I mean, we I could get into that one, but I, but you're right. I mean, that was quite quite an experience, being on the other side of the mic and then stepping out and, and running for office. It gave me some interesting perspective. That's I really sure. love that. In other words, for Chuck Morse, ringside isn't close enough. <laughs> <laughs> Barry, you're a legend in this business, and I guess that I just have to start by by asking you you, uh, to uh, observe and to opine, if you will, on this recent uh, recall election in Wisconsin. My liberal co-hosts, Patrick O'Heffernan and I, just attended the uh, Netroots Nation Convention in Providence, Rhode Island, which is, of course, a liberal concave, and uh, people were doing a lot of post-mortem there on that election and how it's going to impact the country and what it means uh, to our society and what it means to the upcoming election this November. 
Uh, Chuck, I don't know if you've had the same feeling I have uh, about not just Wisconsin. How about the North Carolina gay marriage vote? Um, uh, what about Scott Brown in addition to Scott Walker? What about uh, Anthony Weiner's uh, uh, replacement within the five boroughs of New York, a Republican conservative? How many times? I mean, I was a boxer. Uh, uh, I won uh, in high school. I won one fight, lost one fight, tied one, and quit. Uh, but I know the feeling of throwing my best punches and, and landing them, and the guy won't go down. Why all of this optimism on their side? Why do we permit it? Why all this pessimism on our side? Instead of marching like the liberation of Paris marched, uh, we're saying lugubrious things to each other like, well, Obama can't run on his record, so he's going to have to go negative against Romney. Hey, man, look at the Battle of the Bulge that we just won. Look at the Normandy beachhead we just landed. Look at all of our victories, all of their defeats. And they're letting themselves in for more and more and more defeats with the leaks every day, a new they show us a different jaw to strike at, uh, and yet, and yet, and yet, people are not willing to haul off and be optimistic, and that by itself can destroy our chances. Well, you know, Barry, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the mainstream media, once again, is completely and utterly, it appears, in Obama's pocket, and they are just the beautiful people and the fashionable people and the great-looking girls and all the rest. They're all part of that. And um, a, a piece of proof on that would be that this past weekend there were rallies in, I think, over 200 cities. 65,000 people turned out uh, to rally for the Tea Party movement. And there wasn't a single mention of this in the mainstream press. But if you have a couple of motley-headed people standing up in front of a building and, and say that they Occupy Wall Street, it's front page of the, Wall Street, of the New York Times. So there, there's a sense of... Um, I don't know, you know, uh, dislocation. It's almost like existing in a parallel universe. But of course, you're quite right. These special elections have been the the real thing. I mean, ultimately, the actual vote. When people, you know, people uh, go to the polls, you know, the, they, as uh, I think it was Jesse Jackson who said, "You can talk the talk, but you got to walk the walk, and you walk to the polls." Um, and there's a special election, by the way, tomorrow. And this one is a very emotional one because it's in Arizona and it's for the seat that has been vacated by the resignation of Gabrielle Giffords, who was unfortunately shot. Right. But um, it looks like, um, you know, her, her, um, an office person in her office is running for her seat against a, a pretty strong Republican, and the polls say it's, it's even. Um, mm. You know, in a sense, I mean, if, if her person wins, it's, it's more of a nostalgia vote kind of the mm -hmm. same reason why Ted Kennedy kept getting elected here in Massachusetts. Or but, why um, Johnson got elected. That's right. That, yeah, it, well, there was a right. There was a kind of a sympathy vote. But even so, it looks like there, there, there could be an upset, and even there, there might be a Republican victory, but we'll know tomorrow. Uh, Chuck, uh, I don't want to play can you top this, but here you're talking about how the Tea Party was ignored in favor of the motley-headed crowd. Turn the page. The day the Roman Catholic Church decided to push back en masse and seriously against the Obama administration, that was on a Monday. By right. late Friday afternoon, the three major networks had 
devoted a total of 18 seconds to that story. That's an average of well, six seconds per network. Yeah, and, and I think this rally this past weekend was all about this sort of protest against the mandate, the health mandate, and it's a growing movement of people that are going to engage in civil disobedience. They're not mm-hmm. going to pay it. And, it's uh, again, this was 65,000 people peaceably demonstrating. Um, and that, yeah, I mean, you've observed correctly, Barry, as always. It's an alternative <laughs> universe. Uh, let me welcome aboard my co-host, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick? Thank you. Thank you very much, Chuck and Barry. Uh, thank you for, for being uh, with us. Um, uh, do you want to talk about your book? <laughs> I will grit my teeth and bear it. You, you know, I must be a real conservative because I enjoyed that little riff with with Chuck right now as much as I enjoy talking about the book. Well, let's talk about the book for a while. And, and the book is Cocktails with Molotov. And right. uh, I, I should tell everybody that uh, I, I flew back from the Networks Nation convention, um, which which outnumbered all of the Tea Party rallies uh, by several several times. And my plane was was two hours late, and I had to change planes and hang out in airports. And I was reading this book the whole way, and I never even noticed I was late because I was laughing so much. The only negative was that several people turned turned to me and kind of glared at me because while they were going, my plane's late, I was laughing. So that's, oh wow! <laughs> it, it, oh man, what? Now, now I know what it feels like to have your air force destroyed on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> May, so may I tell? Uh, I, I was just going to volunteer to tell you the genesis uh, of this particular book. Well, I was um, going to ask you to do that. It's, it, it's kind of unusual. I don't know if you were ever taken prisoner by a magazine cartoon, but I was. I guess it was 41 years ago. It was an Esquire cartoon. You know, all penguins look like they're wearing swallowtail tuxedos, and there was a clump of penguins on an Antarctic ice cap. And they were all in, the, in, in this, uh, all in these swallowtail tuxedo-like uh, garments uh, to the naked eye. And there was one penguin who was wearing a natty beret and a flashy French foulard and a checkered vest and a gold chain and a rhinestone-studded cigarette holder. And the caption was, he was saying to the other penguins, I just got tired of being so damn formal all the time. Uh, that impressed me when I sat down. I, I had too much I wanted to say about too many things, and I realized that um, an autobiography is much too pompous for my weight class, uh, too many dull pages in every life. And the same thing with a memoir. I mean, not that many people have done that much worth memoirizing. But I figured I would take the things that I wanted to write about, chapters from my experience, and they, all the chapters had to have two things in common. They all had to be true, and they had to be unbelievable. <laughs> in other words, I leave uh, uh, the University of North Carolina for a football game at the University of Maryland and wind up for six weeks in communist Yugoslavia. I'm not leaving anything out. I'm not putting anything in. Chapel Hill, North Carolina, to College Park, Maryland, wind up for six weeks in Tito's communist Yugoslavia. Or my dear departed buddy, Charlie Fawcett, Episcopalian aristocrat, movie star. He was in 135 movies, never the lead, but many times number three. And Charlie Fawcett married and divorced six 
Jewish women within 18 months to oh save God. their lives. Married and divorced six Jewish women within 18 months to save their lives. He was a student in France. World War II came. Hitler conquered France. Hitler didn't want to fight with America. Uh, he put the word through from Berlin, treat the Americans in France correctly. If they're students, let them stay there and study. And when the French underground, the anti-Nazi underground learned this, there was a knock on Charlie Fawcett's dormitory door. Mr. Fawcett, would you help us save some lives? If you marry and divorce, marry and divorce, marry and divorce, whoever gets married and divorced will have papers to go from Hitler's world to America's world. And he did that six times. <laughs> wow. He never met he never met all six women, and Lord knows he never had a honeymoon. But it was all done on paper. And uh, the uh, State Department back in Washington didn't like it at all. They were not uh, they weren't going to help save lives, Jewish or otherwise. But uh, there were some real humanitarian heroes in our embassy uh, in Paris, and they they did the paperwork with good cheer. What a story. Yeah, so, so they have to be true, and they have to be um, uh, unbelievable. I'm the only living witness, Patrick, uh, of a fight between Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. I'll just let it go. Maybe I shouldn't explain them. Maybe it's a lot more uh, a lot more mystique-fied if I don't explain it. <laughs> well, one thing I'd like you to explain, Barry, is where the title came from. Okay, one of the chapters – oh, by the way, there's one – one thing I just remembered, there was a, a, a football game, no Sandlot stuff. This is Thanksgiving Day Memorial Stadium, Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, between Morgan State and A&T, and the score was 18 to nothing. There were no touchdowns, hence no extra points. There were no safeties, and there were no place kicks. I'll just let that hang right there. But uh, cocktails with Molotov, okay. Yes, indeed. I had cocktails with Molotov. Now, that uh, may not be unbelievable, but it's unusual for somebody from North Carolina in his 20s. Um, uh, uh, it just so happens that I decided it might be good for my journalistic habit if I got myself into the Soviet Union as a very young journalist and, you know, picked up some uh, first-hand observations of communism in action. And on July the 4th, 1956, there were so few Americans in Moscow that the embassy invited all of us to the July the 4th party at the residence of the American ambassador. And at, uh, at one point, the band struck up and in walked the Soviet Big Five, Khrushchev, Malyankov, Bulganin, Kaganovich, and Molotov. I felt like I was looking at a communist Mount Rushmore. And uh, I, I, there was that unforgettable face. I said to him, you're Molotov. He said, yes. I said, I'm, I'm Barry Farber. I'm from the United States. He said, how long have you been in town? I said, two days. He said, how long are you going to stay? I said, well, we hope to stay 17 days. At that moment, his aide came, took him by the elbow over to Ambassador Chip Bowen. Uh, 35 years later, I had a radio show, and I was talking to uh, a revisionist professor. That's a polite way to say of somebody who writes that Harry Truman was the bad guy and Joseph Stalin just wanted mm. to preserve the gains of the working class. <laughs> so uh, uh, 
Uh, I said, you know, in Yugoslavia in 1951, they thought they were going to get invaded by the Stalinist troops every single night. He said, Mr. Farber, in his memoirs of 1955, Vyacheslav Molotov stated emphatically that Joseph Stalin never had any intention of invading Yugoslavia militarily. And I frowned and I said, well, that is funny, because in my 1956 conference with Molotov, he didn't say a word about it. (laughs) (laughs) But you also uh, had a a very interesting encounter with uh, General Bradley and Admiral Burke. Do you want to tell us about that? That You're the first person who's picked up on that. You know, it's ground-kissing time in America. (laughs) And Um, and I'm a uh, liberal. (laughs) <laughs> well, good. Look, we've got to keep some liberals around for research, if not for breeding purposes. <laughs> Nothing against that at all. But, but, and we uh, keep conservatives uh, around for amusement, but go on. All right, okay. Well, what happened was um, I was, uh, uh, as a student, on like a student uh, on ABC Network, it was one of these Sunday, uh, uh, like a, a meet the press at the student level. And I had just been... Uh, inducted into the army and there I was in the uniform of a buck private not even PFC interrogating General Omar Bradley on network television that doesn't happen in many countries but the uh, uh, the Arleigh Burke thing was interesting uh, a woman I went to school with in North Carolina lived in Washington her father was a very affluent doctor and uh, she invited me to come over because the neighbor was just coming back from Korea, and we're all going to have uh, drinks in her backyard patio. Well, the neighbor was Admiral Arleigh Burke. The reason he was coming back from Korea was he had just been at the Pan, you know, our major representative at the Panmunjom truce talks uh, with the communist Chinese. And here I was, a buck private, in uniform, drink in my hand, uh, uh, getting the story, getting briefed, uh, from Admiral Burke on how the Chinese uh, communists would say, we own this hill, pointing to a map, and we knew we owned the hill, but the Chinese would attack that hill that night. Same thing happened the next day. By the third day, we were ready for them. So <laughs> anyhow, that, that, these stories so far are all true. There's nothing in there that's not true. They're tr- oh, except for the one that's clearly labeled a fable. Of, uh, it's true that it's a fable, okay? And, and that's about the uh, uh, rivalry between Duke and Carolina uh, and uh, how the uh, Carolina Special Forces, they, they try to capture each other's mascot and hold them prisoner until halftime of the Duke-Carolina game, where amid great laughter and applause, uh, the hostages repatriated. Uh, they try to capture our ram, ram sees our mascot, and we try to capture their blue devil, and uh, uh, we uh, succeeded one year. And that that story of him being thrown through the window of a country church uh, at, during a midnight service in his blue devil uniform, and the havoc that ensued is not true. It's true that it's a fable. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, well, having been a professor at Georgia Tech and watching the uh, shenanigans between Georgia Tech and the University of Georgia involving okay. Okay. The same kind of thing. Right? Um, I was also really amused at uh, your daddy's shameful victory. You want to tell our listeners about that? Yeah, that, that shows here's where liberals and conservatives can join and lament. Lament the passing of the age of character, the passing of the age of elegance in America. This would, not, this would happen in, in reverse form today. 
My father went to Baltimore City College. Sounds like a university. It's not. It's a high school. Still called Baltimore City College. And uh, they had a tennis team, and Daddy was a star. And they went to play a few high schools in Pennsylvania, and they found themselves without a competitor on Sunday. So their team manager called Lafayette University, and they scheduled an impromptu match. And uh, the Baltimore boys beat them. Baltimore City College won. And on the way from the tennis courts to the shower room, one of the Lafayette players said, you guys look a little too young to be in college. He said, no, we're not in college. We're in high school. Baltimore City College is a high school. Well, you would think that the principal of Baltimore City College, if it were today, would leak it to the press. It would be on Drudge. Uh, He'd be on the Today Show. There'd be a press conference. He was furious. He almost expelled them. He said, who gives you the right to go embarrass a college without me. You have no business challenging a college. You're a high school football team, and they were lucky not to get expelled. Uh, that but, you know, it it never occurred to me, Chuck, but that story is also unbelievable. Yes. <laughs> That's hysterical. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm in mean, Patrick. Well, yeah. it, it doesn't matter. We're almost interchangeable. Right. Okay. Well. Right. <laughs> except, except for ideology, right? Yeah, right. for, for right. ideology, although we do agree on, on a few things. Well, I wanted to ask you seriously, um, you were a pioneer in, in conservative talk radio. In fact, you were the pioneer uh, in conservative talk radio. Now, as you look over the landscape of talk radio, both con- conservative and liberal, are, are you pleased with what you see? Uh, I am pleased, except from a personal standpoint. By the way, you just reminded me. Uh, I'm not in position to take notes right now, but there's a stunning analogy here. Uh, you know, our boys who were captured by the Japanese in the Philippines, uh, and many of them died in the death march from Bataan. Others were sent back to work in factories in Japan. Do you know that they feared coming home at the end of the war because they were under the impression that the American public would think that they were cowards and weaklings? Uh, and they were really here. You know, they held off the whole Japanese army and navy for six months. Mm-hmm. Japan attacked December the 7th. Bataan did not fall. Bataan and Corregidor did not, and, and the Philippines didn't fall until May. Uh, he was the, the radio man, and I got to interview him while he lived. And uh, that was staggering that they were afraid to face the American public for fear they would be uh, denounced as cowards and weaklings. Well, uh, same thing here. I look upon today with such longing. Uh, I did, yes, okay, I was conservative, and I felt because I knew a little bit about communism firsthand that I had sort of a uh, submission. But we didn't know our power. We didn't use our muscle. Uh, uh, We were just obedient little poodles. No politician anywhere was afraid of any one of us. Uh, We were obedient, entertaining little poodles. And when I look at Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh, uh, when I look at Rusty Humphreys and I see that these once upon a time, not those individuals, but those those who fill that role, or have transmogrified from uh, pleasant little poodles uh, into fire-breathing mastodons. I'm just sorry. 
I'm just sorry that that was not part of our culture. I'm sorry we didn't do that in those days. Well, what did you do in those days then? Oh, we interviewed people who wrote books about the abominable snowman and flying saucers. And I remember as proud as uh, uh, Rush and Sean are for bringing down governors and corrupt politicians, I'll tell you what we, we were proud of. I was proud of the night I destroyed the Bermuda Triangle. I had four people who'd written books affirming the existence of the Bermuda Triangle. At one point, I said, I want you all to turn your chairs around so your backs are facing each other. I want to give you each a map and a felt pen. I want you to draw the Bermuda Triangle. Oh, my Lord, in a courtroom, the judge would have said, no sense having a... No sense wasting the jury's time here. <laughs> this is open and shut. No two maps were alike. One had a line from Bermuda to, the, to Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, down to Key West. Another went from Bermuda to Key West, <laughs> to the middle of the Atlantic. Another went from Bermuda to Boston and back down to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. That's what, that's what we reveled in. No politician anywhere was afraid of any of us. We did not use our muscle to build a better America and to purge America of rottenness where we found it. Uh, I really there's a, May I tell you a short little story that exemplifies this? It'll really wind up saving time if you let me tell it. Of course. But just real quickly, let me remind our listeners that are listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and <laughs> on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. And we are talking to the legendary Barry Farber about his book, Cocktails with Molotov. Go ahead, Barry. Well, I feel like that uh, hot dog salesman from the cart down at the bottom of Manhattan, New York, the Battery. Remember James Mishner, who wrote South Pacific and the sure, Bridge in Hawaii? And, uh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He decided to take a one-day vacation from his home in eastern Pennsylvania. And he came to New York City, and he went up to the hot dog stand there at, in Battery Park. And the hot dog salesman looked at him and said, don't tell me, don't tell me, Jimmy, 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 third grade, Miss Hobbs, Eastern Pennsylvania, don't Jimmy, Jimmy. And Mishner finally could take it out longer. He said, Jimmy, Mishner, Jimmy, Mishner, right, Jimmy, how are you, Jimmy? Jimmy, whatever became of you? And Jimmy said, well, I became a writer. He said, a writer, Jimmy, really, what do you write? He said, I write books. He said, no kidding, Jimmy, how many books have you written? He said, I've, I've written 35. 35 books? Tell me, Jimmy, uh, about how much money do you earn on each book? And Mr. said, well, I think it averages out to about a million dollars. And the hot dog man said, wow, 35 books, a million dollars a book. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> so when I listen to Rush and Sean and you and Chuck and all the other sluggers, who are in the ring making air power count, uh, I feel like I've wasted air power. Well, you built the, the, uh, the scaffolding for us to exercise. So. <laughs> That's right, Barry. I mean, you know, they, as they say, you know, our grandfathers fought wars so we can uh, do art. I mean, you, well, were, you were out there at the beginning, and, you know, it, I, I know that my mentor, Jerry Williams, the late Jerry Williams. Oh, when he, yeah. You know Jerry? Him. Oh, yes, sure. Great man. He, when he started in talk radio, and he did start to do controversial radio in the late 50s, early uh, 60s, 
they wouldn't allow his vo- they wouldn't allow the caller's voice to go on the air. He would have to take a call and and it would be written down and then he'd read the comment and mm. and respond to it. So, you know, radio has become it has evolved. I mean, it's become really the true um you, you know, the 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 true soapbox of the people. I mean, it's it's the equivalent of in colonial days when somebody would stand up on a box in the town square and and mm-hmm. and give a give a talk. Well, I've used a little of that, exactly that kind of therapy to assuage uh, my feelings of having wasted air power. For instance, uh, uh, I, I was part of the generation of whites in the South. Uh, we did not break the color line. We did not break Jim Crow. We did not break segregation. We needed what the, the white bigots called the outside agitators to shake things up and mount the test cases and everything. But what we did, what we did as a group, all white Southerners my age, what we did was create the climate that allowed a civil rights movement to proceed as non-catastrophically and non-tragically as it did. There were casualties, of course, but it would have been much worse. I mean, we were in open ridicule of segregation. We ridiculed our elders who believed in segregation, uh, and that created a climate. We were not the heroes, far from it, but we did create the climate, and maybe what I did in those days helped create the climate for you all today. I sure hope so. Absolutely. I I think it did in in, in many ways, and I I agree with Chuck that this this is kind of one of the the, the people's mediums, although uh, we've been, um, I won't say eclipsed, but we've extended uh, this into the Internet. And, of course, we now have our blogs and our Twitter feeds and and our Facebook pages, and there's communication that goes on there, too. But but you built the scaffolding for this. Um, And I just wonder if you can answer something uh, for our our listeners. And and also, every time I I talk to my liberal friends, uh, my fellow liberals, I should say, they want to know why is it that for every liberal radio host, there are 15 to 20 conservative hosts? Why is this a medium that that conservatives advocate to? Patrick, I've I've got... I've got my theory, and my cousin Gurney warns me never to trust a fact unless it's supported by a theory. <laughs> um, but it, it 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 goes like this: you don't uh, turn on television, uh, uh, you don't turn on 60 Minutes, uh, and uh, get the back talk from viewers. Uh, there's no there there are letters to the editor in newspapers and magazines, five or six selected and edited by the editor. Uh, um, You don't go to a movie and after the movie see letters to the director. You don't go to a play and after the play they turn the lights back on and say letters to the playwright. The only medium where the public is involved actively is talk radio. And my theory is that insofar as the public is allowed in, it will be conservative in America. Now, now wh- why do you say that? Because because liberals like to talk, too, and, and we do quite a bit. Yeah, but I, uh, well, just to examine, I'm, I'm, I'm being what they call empirical. Uh, and, uh, how is it that talk radio is the exception? You know, when I entered radio, we didn't use terms like liberal and conservative. You know what we used? We used normal and crazy. Uh, the man who became my dear friend and benefactor, Bill Buckley, 
He was a crazy. He admitted this. He wrote this in a column that every time he's put on television, he feels like it's P.T. Barnum uh, putting the dwarf or the elf or, you know, uh, the freak uh, out for public exposure. Uh, uh, The people who were on the liberal side were considered normal, and those who had any other point of view uh, were considered freaks. Um, Show me uh, why. How is talk radio the sole tax bad boy? My theory is the only one I can think of that explains it. Well, I I have another one for you, uh, and I'd I'd like to hear what you say because this is actually uh, Van Jones's uh, theory, but it's one I've come to myself, and that is that liberals live in their heads. We like we like facts, we like logic, we like reason, and some reason we have a hard time getting into our hearts conservatives live in their hearts they feel things they burn for things they have a hard time with facts and and, and reason but uh, they they're they're dedicated and talk radio works well with people who live in their hearts with people who want to, who have a strong opinion they may not have all the facts right their logic may be a little off but damn it that's what they believe and they're going to fight for it it's not uh, a good medium for people who think, well, I will give you the latest study and talk to you about the reasons why it connects to that study, and then we can look back at this over here. That, that, that's my theory. What do you think of that? Your theory, I, I, I like it. It's got strong features about it, but I just see one uh, limitation, okay. uh, and that is uh, let's just take uh, something where there, uh, uh, t- uh, take an argument such as the merits of communism, whether you call it communism or whether you call it progressivism. You know, well, the two are not the same, just for the record. Oh, I, I, I know that, but uh, Van, remember the trouble Alan, uh, Colonel and now Congressman Alan West got into uh, by saying uh, how many communists there were in the House yep. of Representatives? Yep. They just called themselves progressives. Uh, but uh, 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 let me just take the merits of that. Every time that system has been applied, now I'm excluding Scandinavia, that never was socialist, it never was communist, it is free enterprise, 100%, but high taxes and broad social welfare. But socially, I'm talking about the means of production in the hands of the state or the hands of the thugs or the hands of a, a communist party or whoever. Every place that has been tried has failed. Now, uh, if you had a, a cat that tore up 39 sofas, would you provide him sofa number 40 so he could go to work on that? Now, yes, that's in my heart, but yeah. it's also, uh, you know, have you been to Hungary? Have you been to Poland, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, East Germany? Now, now look, I've actually been how, did, how did the world survive with Finland? prosperous Scandinavian countries staring right into the face of the Soviet Union, you talk about West that Berlin staring at East Berlin, and South Korea staring at North Korea, and the world still doesn't get that point. Okay, uh, We've got to take a, um, a station uh, break. Can you stay with us for a few minutes? Of course. Chuck, do we have, can we do that? Yep, you bet. Okay, Patrick. Okay, we're going we're gonna to uh, stay with you for a few minutes, and Chuck, I'll just say that you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. We're talking with the fabulous uh, Barry Farber about his book, Cocktails with Molotov, and we will be right back. (laughs) 
why is it when I see your name? It's got me all busted up, butterflies in my brain. And every time you call, I can't seem to get it right. Why am I up till 2 a.m.? Now it's quarter past three, boy, you did it again. And I can't seem to get a cheeky smile out of my mind. I feel like a fool when I lose my cool. I'm just trying to impress you, boy, you got me sprung. And I don't know what to do. Could this be Love by Bassy. Bassy's going to be with us this Friday on Music Friday. I want to remind everybody that we're being brought to you by Barton Publishing, bartonpublishing.com, your place for information to manage your body naturally. And here's your host, Chuck Morris. Thank you, Patrick. Our guest is Barry Faber, legendary radio talk show host. Um, we're getting into a good nuts and bolts conversation here. Patrick, I just want to throw in a quick correction, I think. You can okay. dispute this. But I don't think there were 65,000 people turning out for Netroots Nation. I think there might have been maybe 2,000, maybe no, there, three. There were, there were 2,700 paid and about 300 um, um, other people who, who weren't paid. But uh, if I said 65,000, it was a, definitely a mistake. Sorry. Right, right. I'm just saying because you compared that to the 65,000 people oh. who went to rallies over the weekend for, you know, the Tea Party, the protest of the mandate. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think that your comments about Van Jones, the exact opposite is true, Patrick. Um, it, is, it is liberals who are into the, not just feeling, but they're into this kind of ideological bubble, whereas conservatives are much more based upon reality, uh, much more based upon what is, what exists. You know, conservatives understand things like private ownership and self-interest and various other elements of human nature that conservatives view as good even though they need to be checked by government and by rules, whereas on the left you have this sort of ideological phenomena of living in this world which idealizes things that not only can't be but would be evil if they were. Um, you know, it's this kind of this idea of being progressive, Progre progressing toward what? You know, I mean, that's a question that kind of hangs out there. And I think Barry makes the point that every time it's been tried, which is to say, you know, utopian authoritarian government. It uh, it not only fails, but it has caused more evil in this world than anything known to man. So I don't think that uh, conservatives generally are very reality-based, very fact-based, unless, of course, you're talking about belief in God, which I think you are talking about. No, I'm not. Um, Actually, I'm talking about okay. the fact that, that, uh, uh, that, uh, that I have – well, this is this is probably not a good conversation to get into when we have a guest here. Let's just let me just say that's okay. That you, You've got a very appreciative guest. I'm audience member 001. I okay, love it. Okay. Well, well, Barry, maybe why don't you weigh in on this? Well, well Chuck and how, I. Live how in do you expect me to? Worlds, okay. Yeah, uh, uh, Chuck. I disagree with everything you, you just me, said. How do you expect me to weigh in against someone whose plane is two hours late and is reading my book, Flying from Providence, <laughs> and is happy as can be? Uh, happy, uh, uh, happier than uh, the other passengers because they're grousing about being late, and he's reading my book, and I he's, he's having a wonderful time. You expect me to jump in and give him an <laughs> ideological rabbit punch? No, no, no. Of course not. Patrick is a great guy. 
<laughs> okay. By the way, I gotta make make a comment. I think yep. we have something in common. Uh, you two have this enterprise in common: liberal and conservative. Now, other networks hire people, liberals and conservatives, to face off against each other for one segment here, two segments there. But you two own the enterprise. I, yep. I'm the only other example of that. Alan Combs and I uh, had a show, a franchise of our own. It was called Left to Right before Alan uh, went with Sean Hannity and had a great career. But uh, uh, we were, uh, you know, liberal and conservative. We co-owned the company. We co-owned the syndicate. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, that is, is much too rare, and it just it turns my tired blood into sparkling burgundy to hear you two <laughs> cooperating. <laughs> On the same page. But, well, thank you. Now we just need to get it out there, right, Patrick? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chuck and I have a lot in common. Uh, we're both fathers of daughters. Uh, we both are married to very powerful wives. We both like to cook, and we both like history, and we both like politics. You know. Uh, well, except for the cooking, I'm identical. <laughs> <laughs> How many daughters do you have? We each one. have one. Okay, well, I have two. (laughs) (laughs) Good Uh, to see you. Speaking of daughters, there's one chapter in your book which I just can't let you get away without telling our our readers about, and that's the Speak Now or Forever Hold Your Peace chapter. Did you tell us that story? Oh, my. Oh, yeah. I I was at a a garden party, (laughs) not at the American Ambassador's residence in Moscow, but on the east side of Manhattan. And uh, it was one Labor Day. Nora Hayden, in addition to being a strikingly beautiful superstar-looking woman, is a a great writer. She writes books, and they sell very well. And um, uh, Virginia Graham, remember her? She was a great lady of the media. She was there. And um, I don't know why I asked. Uh, It just sort of, I mean, uh, nothing I said was relevant to anything that had been said or might have been said. I just carry around spare topics to inject in the middle of other people's conversations. (laughs) And uh, I said, by the way, uh, you know that line in the marriage ceremony, uh, if anyone here, you know, the preacher is saying, anyone here knows why these two should not be joined in holy matrimony, speak now or forever hold your peace. I said, has anybody ever spoken now? And Virginia Graham said, yes, I was there, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, The uh, bride, oh, a real full-dress wedding, you know, bridesmaids and the flower girls and all the rest. And uh, one of the, uh, uh, when the preacher got to that point, uh, she said, yes, Father, I would like to say something. And the priest right away was a little edgy, but... He figured, what harm can there be? She turned to her parents and said, I just want you to know how much I love you. You are the best parents any woman could possibly have. You have given me such a great childhood and adulthood, and I want you to know how much I love you. And then she turned to uh, the groom's parents and said, and although we haven't known each other as long as my parents and I, you took me in, you made me one of you you gave me love. You gave me support. We had wonderful times together, and I want you to know that I will always love you, too. And she said, and as for my groom, may he drop dead for sleeping with my maid of honor last night. And she threw the flowers right there at the altar and stormed out of the church. 
Now, uh, we had an occasion to debate the, uh, the tactics back and forth, and Virginia Graham said her point was this. She knew that um, if, if she simply called off the wedding, oh, by the way, the bridesmaid fainted. I left that out. <laughs> uh, uh, if she had let it run its course, you know, just canceled the wedding, it would have been he says, she says, her word against his. She wanted sort of a stomp down resolution to this, and <laughs> I guess she got it. <laughs> wow. What a story. Yeah. I could just see it. It's very visual. Yeah, the oh, yeah. have daughters. There's a nightmare. Yeah. No, exactly. And, yeah. Barry, I mean, that's one of your great skills anyways. You're a great storyteller, and when you do tell a story, it's it's like uh, you you feel like you're at a movie. You know, it's oh, like you wow. become totally engrossed in it. And, um, you know, you, you create images with words that are very, very powerful and, um, you, you know, certainly you're, you're the best in, in that sense in, in this business. Well, Chuck, I got pills that can arrest my uric acid to fend off gout, but there's no pill that can bring me in for a gentle landing after the way you're treating me, both of you. And I want you to know I appreciate it. Oh, we have a sponsor well, who might be able to help. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Check out Joe Barton. Uh, Barry, I want to, again, uh, the, where is the book available? Uh, Amazon is the one-word answer to that question. Uh, of course, I uh, write a column for WorldNet Daily, and this uh, is published, uh, uh, Cocktails with Molotov, published by WorldNet Daily Books. So you can right. go to, you, you, if for any reason you don't want to go to Amazon, you can go to WorldNet Daily or Google uh, uh, Cocktails with Molotov. There are many ways to get to Rome these days, and most people are aware of them, but uh, my one-word answer is Amazon. And the, the title, again, is Cocktails with Molotov. Great. Cocktails with Molotov, and check out uh, Barry Farber's column in WorldNet Daily. Barry, I want to thank you for joining us this afternoon. I want to thank you, and I want to congratulate you. You have really elevated me, and I, I don't deserve I don't deserve it, but I've got gout, and I don't deserve that either. <laughs> right. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you, you very much, Patrick and Chuck. You, there's none better, and I'm, I'm real proud to be in the same business with you. Thank, thank you. you, as are we. Thanks so much. Take care. Pat, you bet. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, Patrick, we should go to a break and be back with our two. Uh, for open lines, of course, you're welcome to join us at 424-675-6806, or you can email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Please stay tuned.
And, and we're we back, back, hour number two, Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Welcome aboard, 424 375, I mean, yeah, 375-6806. I'm sorry, 675-6806. The number again is 424-675-6806. This is yours truly, Chuck Morse, along with Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick, how are you? I'm doing well. I really enjoyed that. Uh, obviously, if, if, if uh, we wanted to get into a heavy-duty political discussion, Barry and I would be at loggerheads. But uh, uh, the, the book, and I don't know if you had a chance to read the book, Chuck. I didn't, Patrick, because I didn't get it. Oh, no. Yes, and I'm a, that's why I, I kind of was a little flat-footed there, oh. but uh, well, I, would I will like send to you get my it. copy. Yeah, thank you. Although I did get The Battle of a School Prayer by by Bruce Derenfield, which is excellent, by the way. Yeah, well, and he's going to be on tomorrow, I believe. Oh, yes, it's great. A very, yeah. very good book. Very well, nuanced, very well well developed. Well, I'm sorry about that. The publishers, um, you know, they, they got your address, and uh, I don't know why they didn't send you a copy. But yeah, it's a problem. This book is too good to pass up, so I will stick my copy in the mail to you and uh, get it to you because you'll have a, you'll have a good time reading it. Uh, the, the book itself is uh, is very funny. It, it's not really political. There's a couple of little political jabs in it, but uh, sure. mostly it's about strange adventures on the way to becoming a radio star. Well, Barry is you know the man is uh, not a hardcore political host. I mean he's 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 a storyteller. He's quite folksy, and in a sense, Patrick, that approach you can get a lot more done politically than than if you're just like the good old you know. I, maybe that's something that Barry might might himself miss, but I think he's accomplished a lot more than he realizes just by his ability to tell stories that people can relate to. I mean, if you could work your way into uh, people's thinking and into people's hearts through the culture, you know, you could get a lot more done. That's something the left has always understood, and conservatives don't realize. And um, and but to that extent, I think Barry has done a lot. And by the way. You and I should should suggest that we get together invited on his show. Is, does um, he still have a show? Yeah, CRN, I believe. Oh. Okay. And uh, send him a note saying we'd like to go on with him. You know, okay. you and I could end up being regulars of his, which could end up having our show picked up by CRN. Okay, well, we'll do that. Uh, yeah, as, send him a as note. As far as, um, uh, you know, it, it's interesting, Chuck, that you and I do live in two totally different factual or opinion worlds, which, of course, is why we have this show. Um, the show. A lot of hand-wringing is going on within the left right now in, in that uh, we have realized that we think we are far too much in our heads and not nearly as much in our hearts, that we are, we are living in this total factual imperial, empirical universe that uh, doesn't have emotion, and it's the conservatives who have learned how to tell the stories and learned how to use the culture and, and learned how to to use use hearts rather than 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 head to to make such headway and that's why the 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 73 Tea Party people who I consider traitors because they've actually signed allegiance to a foreign power called uh, Grover Norquist uh, got elected to Congress but um, and you see traitors, it just the Patrick? other way <laughs> really that's, yes. that Patrick that kind of I mean I think you're saying that facetiously. No, not really, and that's you know like like you slipped in that thing about uh, lift, uh, the leftists go all the way back to Karl Marx. I'm pointing out that uh, signing Fine. allegiance to a foreign power called Grover Norquist and then damaging the uh, the credit rating of the United States to me is a treasonous act, and those people all all ought to be tried. 
Patrick, you, you're saying that discredits you, but that's okay because that's why we have left-right radio. That's right. Uh, I, and I think the credit problem is the fact that we had these, the, the debt ceiling raised last summer, and now we need to have it raised again, mainly because the spending hasn't stopped. But well, those no, the are stylistic. Has actually gone down, Chuck. It's, it's, it's because well, then why do we need to raise the debt ceiling? Sensible revenue that, that the government needs in order why to do we need to have a, Why do we need to raise acquired? Well, you know, these are stylistic differences. I mean, the question is before us is why do we need to have the debt ceiling raised again, and that's something that can be debated. But the idea of saying that Grover Norquist is a foreign power? Yep. I mean, Karl Marx actually was a foreign power. He was German. Grover Norquist is, uh, last I checked, he's an American citizen who yeah. is advocating smaller government and uh, – uh, and he has a point of view that uh, that people either embrace or they don't. But there's nothing. He's not involved in a conspiracy to to create some kind of a new uh, new entity. I mean, the, the the concept of having a smaller government has been around since time immemorial. That's nothing new. Well, well, actually, if you recall, he said he wanted to shrink government so that he could drown it in the bathtub. Sure. And uh, when you get elected to Congress or the Senate, you swear to uphold the Constitution and defend the United States. You don't swear to allegiance to Grover Norquist and the, and the American Taxpayers Association, but we now have 73 members of Congress who put Grover Norquist and the American Taxpayers Association ahead of the good of the United States. They've sworn allegiance to a power not involved with the Constitution, and they have done things that hurt the United States in response to that power, and I consider that treason, and I think they should be taken out and tried. Patrick, my, we've talked about this a hundred times. Not change it. No, I'm not interested. In, I, I would. I, you're, you're Patrick. You and most people on the left will never change their opinions because it's an ideology that's, well, the, that, that's somewhat immune from reason debate. But putting that aside, the um, we've talked about this a hundred uh, times, we've, we've and, and I think the radio stations. Sure. Okay. okay let's do that. Let's welcome aboard our radio affiliates, WWPRAM and. Tampa Bay, Florida, and KSKQ-FM in Ashland, Oregon. You're listening, and of course, our, our, our online partners, Block Talk Radio, and our host station, Cyber Station USA Radio Network. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. This is yours truly, Chuck Morse. Patrick, how are you? I'm doing well, and part of the reason why I'm doing well is because I have been following the advice of one of our sponsors, www.bartonpublishing, bartonpublishing.com. Remember that cold I had uh, last week? And yeah, sure. It would, it would get worse on the airplane, and actually, I've been using their their advice. I downloaded the information on um, how to manage a cold, and it's gone. So, I want to just remind all of our listeners that uh, Barton Publishing is your source of information to manage your body and your health naturally without resorting to expensive or possibly toxic drugs. And uh, if you use the coupon code Fairness, you get an immediate. 50% discount right there on the screen. So that's why I'm feeling good. I've I've been using Barton Publishing, and it makes my nose breathe freely. Great. And so check out, go to our, our website, fairnessradio.com, click on our Barton Publishing ad, and uh, check out their various products. If you want to purchase any of those, uh, put in fairness as a code, and you save 50%, which means it costs you about 10 bucks. Very good deal. I mean, there are prescription pills that cost ten dollars each. And exactly, this is a whole management system for your body. What a deal, Patrick. Anyway. We're talking about Grover Norquist and his being people signing his pledge being traitors. Um, and I, I've talked about this probably a hundred times, but that's fine because it's something that maybe we might have new listeners who haven't heard it, and I view it as a public service to get into this. 
And it's so obvious. When I ran for office in 2004, I was asked to sign all kinds of pledges, including one from NARAL, including one from Planned Parenthood. Uh, unions have these things. In fact, most of them do, especially the big national ones. And what they do is they send you out a questionnaire and they ask you to check off positions. And if you check off enough positions that they support, then they'll, they will support your candidacy if they think you might win. And they give you in-kind support which, by the way, is a contribution. And that includes things like sending personnel into a district to help you get elected and knocking on doors and phone calls and all the rest. And uh, they, many of these groups have pledges. I mean, that's very common. It goes way back. I don't think that they're traitors. When a congressman, when a congressman signs one of these things, and by the way, I signed Grover Norquist's pledge, the, um, they're not obligated to do it. There's no legal obligation. It's not like they're... You know, it's simply a statement that they will not vote to raise taxes unless there is a concomitant reduction in um, in the budget. And, and, as, and as I've said many times, that when you they get elected to Congress, the only pledge that you, that uh, you take is you uh, is to uh, uphold the Constitution of the United States and defend America from its enemies, internal and external. And here they are signing a an a, a fealty to somebody saying that they will not raise taxes. Even what about people who sign the, the narrow pledge? Raised, that, that's, that means they have, they have given their loyalty to somebody other than nah. the Constitution, and then they take an action that has damaged the United States, and to me that fits the definition of treason. What about people who sign the narrow pledge? Are they also traitors because they agree to not support any position that might hurt abortion rights? That's not what the narrow pledge says. In fact, what does the narrow, narrow pledge, pledge say? It's a survey. No, it's a pledge, Patrick. These are you, you sign these things at the bottom of a page after you check off things that you take positions on. And if you violate those things, NARAL is going to do the same thing to you that Grover Norquist will do. They'll come out against you. Yeah, it's no, a pledge. No, you no, sign Grover it. Norquist has built up a, an infrastructure around the country of uh, statewide organizations that actually do, that spend thousands and thousands of dollars to eliminate people, and they've done it in, in California. We've seen it happen. The, uh, NARAL doesn't do that. I don't don't know if NARAL does that, but but certainly some of the big unions do it, and they send out pledge sheets. But Patrick, they all do this. This is very common. And and when you sign one of those things and you take positions, they then make it available to the media, and you then get called by reporters, and they say, you signed this pledge, you you agreed to that position, and you have to respond to it. And, and And if you agree to enough points and you sign it, then you might get support from that group. And there's nothing wrong with that. Well, That's what they is. all do. Yeah, I know, and you're right. And NARAL right now does have a pledge out uh, for mm-hmm. lawmakers to oppose uh, John Boehner and, and his war That's on right. women. So and, are they traitors, too? Yeah, I, I mean, I he, you happen to like that issue, so you don't think so. But my no, point I don't is, think Patrick, people should sign it. No, I, I don't. Well, I, don't I think, think so. that it's I – th- I actually think people should sign these things left, right, and center because – when someone runs for office, the more you can get them to take a position and sign their name, the more you know who they are and the more you can hold them accountable. Now, again, this doesn't mean that they're, they have to do this. I mean, there certainly are people who have violated the uh, Grover Norquist pledge, and I could most mention the most famous one, which was George Bush Sr. Oh, right. No new taxes, remember? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, right, he signed the Norquist pledge. You know, uh-huh. there's nothing new to that, Patrick. Every candidate, virtually every candidate, especially for federal office, signs a number of these things. I did. I know they you did. They all do. This, I, yeah. 
Well, whether they sure all do or not, I am totally against it. The only place okay. you can take is to defend the Constitution. Well, that's fine. I, I want to be on record as saying that I believe it's a good thing for people to take positions, sign their names to them. It's not legally binding. It doesn't mean they're not defending the Constitution. It just means that they're stating that they're going to do something before they go into office. I think that's much better than having somebody not say anything and just sort of get elected because everybody feels good about them and they offer some vague promises of hope and change. Well, you could take. I would rather see. You could take positions, Chuck, but you have to have some flexibility because things change. Well, you do have flexibility. People never ever going to raise taxes no matter what because things change. Well, people violate these things as well, and they choose to. A lot of, not everybody adheres to Grover Norquist's thing or Nerol's thing. Oh, well, they do you in know, the Congress. And you're right. Things, they are they? in the Congress. Well, they are because they, they actually believe in it, but it's not because of Grover Norquist. People, they, they believe that the government has to demonstrate, for a lot of reasons, economic reasons and otherwise, that they have to demonstrate that they've reduced certain expenditures before they consider tax increases. Now, you might think that's a bad thing, and I, you certainly do, but that's a principled position. It's something to do, ultimately, with Grover Norquist. These well, people actually believed on, on in that it. One. Um, but uh, there it is. We were talking about the, the, uh, the cost of the Wisconsin campaign. Sure. Uh, the definitive source on that is the Wisconsin um, Democracy dot org, and this is a group of. Why are they definitive? Uh, because uh, they they put together a nonprofit organization that it's funded by a variety of newspapers and and uh, universities, and it all it does is is collect and, and post the uh, information from the the candidates' uh, financial statements. What is it called again? It, it, it's a uh, uh, you can find it at WISDC.org. Okay. And it's the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign. Mm-hmm. And um, they've, they've listed out the donations to all sides. First of all, they, they summarize it as, as, we know, as far as we know now, because we don't have all the numbers in, about $125,000 was spent, $125 million was spent on the total uh, Wisconsin Recall Campaign. Mm-hmm. And they list out uh, the donations, um, and that this is the financial summary. Governor Scott Walker raised thirty million five hundred and five thousand eighty-two dollars and sixty-six cents, and spent twenty-nine million two hundred and fifty thousand nine hundred and fifty-nine dollars and eight cents. Tom Barrett raised three million nine hundred and thirty-eight thousand five hundred and seventy-four dollars and fifty-nine cents, and spent. Two million nine hundred and thirty-five thousand seven hundred and sixty-one dollars and fifty-one cents. And for our listeners who wonder why they both have a million dollars left over, and that's to take care of the bills that are still going to come in. There was a third candidate, an independent candidate, who spent one hundred and twenty, raised one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. So, Walker well, Patrick, raised look. ten times more than Barnett. Now, that's not all. You're absolutely right. There's a lot more there. They also list the can who donated to each campaign. And there's a summary of that. The, uh, there were 75,000 donors to Walker's campaign, and mm-hmm. they donated 19 million of the 30 million that, that he raised. So that's two thirds of his money came from 75,000 donors. The other third came from a handful of special interests, and they're all listed there. The largest one of which uh, were non-income earners retired 
uh, that is people, very wealthy people who, who donated $2.8 million. And uh, there are various others there. So that's what we now know, that he raised 10 times more, but he did have 75,000 individual donors. More data is going to come in. So whoever the talk show host you're talking about uh, uh, earlier who are giving you information, they don't have all the information, and I suggest they're talking through their hats. Because all well, the Patrick, first of, all, the, first of all, not that it matters, because it's, it's an, as I said, it's an insult to the – not only is it an insult to the voters of Wisconsin to say that it matters, but it also – maybe this is a good thing, but the left is totally missing the point of what that election was all about by focusing on this, and maybe that's good. But putting that aside, the fact is that Barrett was only nominated, I think, uh, three weeks, maybe a month before the actual – uh, election is that right? Yeah, that's about right. When yeah. did he When did he become the nominee? About a month before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Where is close. Close. the uh, the Republican legislature in Wisconsin deliberately shortened that period in order to make it difficult for him to raise money, and it worked. Right. Good. But the point is, he was nominated. He only had a month to raise money, whereas the money that was funding the recall effort, going back a year was pouring in at the very beginning of it, including getting the recall on the ballot and all of the various people that descended on the state to do that. And I know that, as you say, um, the Koch brothers who have a business there, you say they have 70 people working on it. That's fine. 72. Yeah, and, 72. and just for the record, the Koch brothers personally did not donate a dime to right. Governor Walker. They funneled uh, their money through a variety of other organizations, but they personally didn't donate. Right, but the point is that even considering those people, if you take a look at the amount of money that was spent by the opponents of Walker from the very beginning, from the, from the first people to start camping out at the State House, and no, that was not a campaign donation. There was no campaign until a month before the election. But these, but these were paid people. There was enormous effort wait, wait, wait. put in place. I'm sorry. You mean all those thousands of people? That no, were... not all of them, but a large number of them, yeah. Uh, and that actually comes from Ed Schultz, who talked about this at length. Um, there was there were you know, thousands of paid people, paid people that came in as members of the of unions and other groups and and uh, other organizations that sprang up, and that were staff members who came in and worked on this issue right from the very beginning, getting the recall thousands happening. Thousands, oh, and, and, and that number including I got to look that up because look it up, Patrick. Work and you don't do look that. it up. Call Ed Schultz, and and that number increased as the election went on, and there were other expenditures that would traditionally be viewed as political expenditures that were applied throughout the whole year. So it has nothing to do with whether or not one campaign got money. It has to do with the amount of money that was spent on the effort to get. Scott Walker and to and to dethrone him and his and other senators and that amount of money was enormous. So we're not even talking about all the free media. Well, but Patrick, well, look, both sides got free media and and I, I accept your point. Not really. Points well taken. Yes, they did. They got huge free media and it's got more really. than a national hero. But I accept yeah, your no. point. I accept Thank your you. point that uh, okay. the the run up to the recall uh, should be included in, included in this. However, keep in mind that the governor was raising money at the same time from very wealthy donors, and he used that time and the loophole in the state law. He didn't have to report that money, and it wasn't limited. 
after after he became a recall candidate, the personal donations were limited, so he used that to get $100,000 and million-dollar donations. After that, nothing happened. So both sides used that. You, right. so you, can't, you can't just say one. No, I, and I'm not saying okay. they didn't, but, of course, in the case of Walker, that was reported as part of his, his donations, wasn't it? Those $100,000 donations from those retired widows that it, you're talking about. Uh, some of it was reported, and some of it went to to get out the vote and to third parties who were working for him but didn't have to report it. And the same is true for the people who were pushing the recall, too. Right. And that's why it's going to be a while before we actually know. I will point out, however, that the uh, a number of uh, pundits, including the Washington Post, have noted that the $63 million that was spent up till that day and the $125 million that we know probably had very little influence on the voters. Well, Patrick, I've been making that point. Yes, you, so you told me, right. I, I, yeah, I mean, I told you it really is an insult to the voters to suggest that this, the whole, both sides spent enormous amount of money on, on get-out-the-vote efforts. Both sides had their various front groups in there. Both sides had salaried people, and both sides bought commercials. It has nothing to do with even the official donations for either side. But ultimately, this was a, a you know, an expression of the people of Wisconsin, and I think that two items that prove that this was a considerable victory for, for Scott Walker. Uh, firstly, that uh, they, approximately 40% or slightly under 40% of uh, private union households voted for Walker. That's correct. And secondly, that public unions in the state, the largest, I think the only figures we have on this is the largest public union in the state, which is AFSCME, lost almost 50% of their members after Scott Walker took the monopoly away from them. In other words, he said, you don't have to, by law, absolutely be put into this union. When you become a public employee, you can leave the union, and 50% of the, their membership dropped. Okay. Now, that, right. now, we don't know about other public unions and how, what, what percentage of their membership dropped, but I have a feeling it's probably, uh, you know, maybe as much, maybe we, we, not we, we quite actually, as much. We actually don't know. The, yeah. um, there has been actually some work on that, and that it's being done by the um, the New Haven Register, who has collected some of those figures. Pointed out that uh, 45.6 million dollars was spent on on Walker's behalf, and 17.9 million dollars was spent on Mayor Tom Barrett's behalf by outside third parties, and that mm-hmm. again, their their figures are from the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign. Of that money. Move the needle maybe two points. And again, that's that's not inclu- they're not including the number of paid staffers in the state, and the vast majority of those people were working against Walker. Now, I, I know you say that. that. I, I, you well, no, no I think that's you have a no fact. way of proving that, Chuck. My and proof of that is just watching. Well, I, I will just say that I, I more than casually watched you know, left-wing radio and TV on this issue. And by the way, they had a, he had a huge, uh, the anti-Walker media was huge. The pro-Walker media, which I'd say would be Fox, they didn't cover the story as much as they might have. They occasionally covered it. But if you went to Eddie Schultz and you went to Maddow and you went to, you know, left-wing local radio, like uh, what's his name here in Boston, you know who I mean. Jeff. Um, you know, they were constantly on the story, day after day after day. So but Scott Walker was constantly on uh, Fox News. He was on no, he wasn't on actually. A times. Yeah, but not not as much. I mean, he was. They covered it, but they didn't do. It wasn't quite the same type of coverage. I mean, they covered it, but they didn't. And they would have the opposition on too. 
the the difference is that with the left, it was a constant daily thing. It was like a drumbeat. It reminded me of the Iran Contra coverage. It, it I was saw the every same thing on Fox. And unless you can show me a time analysis, I, my, I, I my can't simple, believe you on that one. No, well, I, I will Every simply time I say that Fox are talking about it. No, they weren't, Patrick. Well. It, I, how often do I watch Fox every day, and I listen to both left and right radio. I actually can speak to this. Okay. They right. they just did not cover it that much. They covered it, but they maybe once, maybe twice a week at most. It wasn't like the the incessant coverage that the anti Walker people got in, in, in both in conversation and in stories. I'm just. Uh, this is yeah. just a matter of fact. Oh, when but, you went to the, uh, the the panel on this, did they talk about the fact that uh, that Scott Walker may actually be impeached and put in jail? No, nope, nobody brought that up. Oh, okay. That was that was mentioned. Now, uh, there's been an investigation going oh, on. Lovely. They've already um, uh, indicted his three top people, and they're coming close to him. And he set up. Well, a that's fine. Fund. That's not going to matter, Patrick, because it's well, not about Scott jail, Walker. Right? No, it doesn't matter if he if they hang him. It doesn't matter. It's not a, the election. This is what the left doesn't quite understand. The election was not about Scott Walker. It doesn't matter what happens to him. They may try. They may make him walk. He could end up having to walk a plank. It won't matter. The fact is that the people of Wisconsin cared about certain issues that he represented. And those things have never – I didn't hear anything about that in that panel. All you heard about was this bitter talk, as you say, we're going to still get Scott Walker, you know, that kind of stuff. And, again, it does, it, it, Scott Walker is not the, the main topic. He's just the person. No, the main topic was that yeah, this. No, I agree with you. You have to look yeah, okay, at the larger thanks. picture here, and that. And yeah, that exactly. There may be some changes going on in the in the way uh, Americans look at economic issues. I mean, that's what uh, the uh, the Wall uh, Occupy Wall Street did. Is it changed the way we looked at issues? And and I think it's there's too much turmoil going on in in the, the paradigm that we all work in in this area now to really say exactly. But I will agree with you completely that the peop that that a majority of the people of Wisconsin said that they, they wanted to make this change. and that Patrick, this was all about the predominant Republican unions. Now, I st I've been talking about this issue, as you know, for years. And, in fact, I have to tell you, and I, I, I'm just going to state, state this. Yeah. I don't know who's listening to us now, but I really want to complain about my stupid, ignorant, asinine publisher of my book, A Whig Manifesto. What's that got to do with, with Wisconsin? It has everything to do with Wisconsin okay. because I wrote an entire chapter on the topic okay. a year ago. Okay. And I talked about public unions and I talked about Scott Walker. And the editor and publisher said that he would not publish that, first of all, because he didn't agree with me. And secondly, because he thought that it would make me and the book very unpopular. Boy, was he wrong. Well, that's not something he should – I mean, I, I don't get him doing that. That's really Well, that's weird. how publishers do it, and this publisher was very ideological. Yeah. So oh. he forced me to edit that paragraph, that chapter, really, out of the book. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I now cannot point to my book and talk about this because he stupidly had me remove it from the book because well, he didn't like it. it on our blog? Maybe. I mean, the point is it's all old news now. The fact is that – you know, back then I was, you know, I, I'm bringing it up only to point out, Patrick, that I've been talking about this for a long time, and that back then it was not seen, people hadn't heard of it. I remember mentioning this to you, Patrick, just yeah. before the 2010 election, mm -hmm. and you were not against it, you were not for it, you just had never heard of it. You were scratching your head, like, why is this interesting? Why is this important? And I remember telling you at the time, this was in, like, October of 2010, and I said, look, 
this is going to be the biggest issue in the next couple of years. No, this, right. you, Look, you, you mark my words. This is going to be. It's yeah. one of the biggest issues. I mean, uh, sure. right now, the, 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 that's one of the issues. The, the other issue is, is jobs, and, an, and another issue is the, uh, the income gap, the 1% versus the 99%. And these are all the big issues that are coming up now. And so well, you're this, right about this, that. Uh, two yeah. other things happened, and I'll say this mm-hmm. to support your point. Uh, in California, there were two um, elections. They were, they were um, referendum elections, and one in San Jose, which has a Democratic uh, administration, and one in San Diego, which has a Republican administration. And on the ballot uh, were um, referendums, uh, initiatives to cut back um, the pensions of public unions, and they both won. That's right, and, and and you know that kind of also goes to to a point that I've brought up and and have brought up throughout, and that is that this is not a Republican or Democratic issue either. This is an, a much more systemic issue. Every governor, I would argue, in this country took a sigh of relief that Scott Walker won that race. Every mayor, liberal, conservative, and otherwise, even though liberals won't come out and say it, my I contend that based upon their actions, which is their struggles with their own completely out of control public unions. Mayor Menino here in Boston, he had public unions picketing John Kerry's inaugural, uh, inaugural address or his, his uh, speech at the uh, state convention. He wouldn't let people go into the convention hall. I mean, because they didn't get some kind of an enormous, they, they were seeking an outrageous benefit. And they, he still has not signed a contract with them. And he's a liberal Democrat if there ever was one. So this has nothing to do with liberal and and conservative actually it has to do with the phenomena and it's a recent phenomena and that is this development of public the public unionizing against in a sense the taxpayer and you know it goes back really the first president to preside because you've mentioned that this is a vendetta against the democratic party since this is their main source of income and and that is part of it too chuck i know it is and you well, you've mentioned that, and, and I think that I heard that also at the uh, post-mortem at Netroots Nation, that this is a big source of money for the Democratic Party, which it is. It is. And, uh, but it hasn't always been. Franklin Roosevelt, when he signed the order cr- creating the, um, the National Labor Relations Board, he vehemently came out against public unions. He said this should never happen. George Meany, the head of the AFL-CIO, often spoke against the phenomena of any public unions developing, and that was in the 60s and 70s. It really didn't start until Kennedy, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because I admire John F. Kennedy. He authorized the first public union, and it really didn't start to develop as a, as a phenomenon until Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was the first public union president because he promised the teachers' union that he would create a Department of Education if they supported him. And that's when, the polit- politically speaking, that's when the shift took place. That's when public unions really started to make their way into local municipalities and in states. So it's not – this is a relatively new phenomena. I would argue that the Democratic Party would be just as well, if not better off, without this sort of forced – contribution from public employees they can get them from public employees as individuals and they can get them from corporations just like they always have just like everyone else does and, and, I, would, and, and I would argue that the republican party would be better off without citizens united and being bought lock stock and barrel and sold by uh, the, cha- the united states chamber of commerce and a few wealthy billionaires 
What's happened is that both parties have, have been twisted. The Republican Party, as we were told last week by one of our guests, has been pushed completely past the goalposts, and the Democratic Party has been pushed back to the 25-yard line. Those, to, those kinds of donations and those kinds of interest groups have, have taken over the parties. In the case of the Republican Party, it's, it's no longer the Republican Party. It's the Tea Party now. It's nothing like what the Republican Party stood for. In the case of the Democratic Party, it has put it in, in difficult situations, as, as you point out. But we have, to, we have to keep in mind, though, that, that when you talk about public, public workers, there was always kind of a deal. Public workers are paid less than their private sector counterparts. And, I, and believe me, I, I can attest to that. Uh, but the deal was they got very good benefits, and, and especially they got a good pension. And when the, uh, the, the Wall Street banks managed to shove these 401K pieces of robbery down our throats so they could charge us fees on our uh, retirement, which take up about a third of our retirement, the public unions were able to stay out of that. So they actually got real pensions. They could, when they retired, they could live real lives, while the rest of us have to go fight with the, with the banks over the money we thought we had. That was always the deal. Now, as it's, as it's turned out, those pensions are becoming very difficult for for, uh, for municipalities, states, and even the federal government to pay. And the public unions, in many cases, have backed down on their pensions. But we do have to remember that that's still the deal. And if you're going to if you're going to take away the pensions, you have to then start paying the uh, the people who work for us, who put out our fires, who protect us, who who do all the things that we expect government to do for us, living wages. You have to bring them up to the same level of wages that the private sectors are, and and that's not happening. And and within a budget, of course, within a strict budget, but we have to keep in mind that we rely on those people. Those are the people that build our roads. Those are the people that teach our children. Those are the people that put out the fires. Those are the people that give us our driver's licenses. Those are the people that we rely on for our civilization to operate. And we can't keep telling them you're not worth it. We can't keep telling them that, sorry, we want you to teach our kids, we want you to do a damn good job, but by the way, we're only going to pay you $29,000 a year. Oh, if you don't like it, you can go to McDonald's where you can earn $31,000 a year. We can't keep doing that. That'll destroy our society. Now, people like Grover, uh, Grover Norquist want to destroy our society. They don't want government to be doing anything. They don't want a civilization. They want everything to be a capitalist jungle where we all fight each other and make the, the, the strongest win, and that's what's beginning to happen. But we've decided in the United States that we care about one another, that we're going to be a civilized country. We're not going to be Somalia. We're going to be the United States. And that's why we have government. That's why we have public, uh, public employees. And that's why we have to pay them. We either have to go along with the deal we originally made or pay them the same way they would get paid in the, in the private sector and give them the, the same benefits they would get in the private sector. So we can't just say they're all evil. You can't just say they're all they're all lazy political hacks because you happen to know one or two in some little town in, in Boston. There are millions of them that do the work that we ask them to do, that hold our society together, that see to it that we're a civilized country, that we're an advanced country, that we're the best country in the world. You take those people away, and we become Somalia. We, we become just another third world country with the, with the rich lording it over the poor, extracting whatever they can get and moving on. And that's why we have government, and that's why we have public employees. And I, continue, and I completely resent and reject the constant drumbeat I get from the Republicans and conservatives about these hacks that are stealing our tax money. Our tax money is being looted by Wall Street. It looted almost a trillion dollars of it under the Bush administration. It loots our 401K. Uh, it, it loots our homes and it loots our jobs. That's where we ought to be worrying about. That's where the money is going. We are being robbed blind by the banks while we while we try to take away from the teachers. 
And that's what the Republicans are doing. The Tea Party Republicans are doing. That's why I say they're traitors. They're destroying our country. They want to turn us into a third world country, and they want to allow the banks to, to loot the treasury. That's, and that's why I push back on this. We need public unions to fight off the banks. We need public unions to fight off the, the, uh, the people who want to loot the Treasury and to turn the rest of us into a, a, a workshop that turns out widgets for, for, Asia, for the Asian markets at $5 a day. And that's why I say it is a conservative conspiracy, because they know that the only three major institutions now that donate real solid political money out of the seven, the top seven, uh, at the top ten in the country, only three donate to de- Democrats, and they're all three unions. And they, the Republicans have figured out if they can break those unions, the Democrats won't have major sources of money, and they can eliminate the Democratic Party, which is what they want to do. It's what Tom DeLay said he wanted to do. It's what Newt Gingrich said he wanted to do. It's what Mitch McConnell said he wanted to do. Eliminate the Democratic Party completely, have a totally Republican administration, which they can turn over to Wall Street and let so we become the united corporations of America, and the rest of us don't count at all. And that's why we need to support public unions, and I still support public unions. And you know, first of all, Patrick, this is not break. about. Oh, okay. That's, uh... You want to take a break first and then respond? Why, yeah, why don't we take the break and then I'll respond? Okay, all right, here we go. Tell our producer we've got a minute break for our radio station. <laughs> You know that feeling when you sit in the sun and everything tingles. And every time I sing this song, makes me smile for endless days. I go round and round and round like a merry go for fun forever. How it makes me happy, cause it's a beautiful day. Day by Zassie. Zassie's going to be with us Friday on Music Friday. If you can talk to her, you can email her. You can talk to us. You can email us. 424-675-6806. FairnessRadio at gmail.com. And now your host today, Chuck Morris. Thank you, Patrick. And we're talking about public unions, and I'm responding to your long soliloquy in the earlier segment. Um, this isn't about public employees, Patrick. Uh, my wife is a public employee. She works for the federal government, which has no unions, by the way. Really? Uh, yeah, they might have one, I think. What, 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 is the, what is the union that the federal government has, federal employees? Um, I'm pretty sure there is a federal um, employees union. I'll look that up. Keep going. No, right. well, well, she's, well for, she's in the judiciary branch, which has no unions. And I don't think there are others. I think that that ended with Reagan He's, when, he, when he busted the PATCO union. But uh, generally speaking, the federal government has, I don't believe, any public employees' unions. And those are there is. It's, it's, good... it's, it's the American Federation of Government Employees. And, it's a member and what of the percentage of federal, and that's federal? Yeah, the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. No, that's not a public union, Patrick. And I don't think that that's federal either. You'll have okay. to look into that. Okay. I don't think the All federal right. government has public, has public unions. Um, 
the um, and those are pretty good jobs. This is not about federal about government employees. It's not an attack on government employees. Government employees are necessary. In fact, I think good government employees should be rewarded, especially teachers. They should earn more. They shouldn't have to deal with the the um, you know kind of the the merit pay system where they get uh, the same as a lousy teacher. New York State City, for example, has forty thousand teachers who aren't teaching because they're substandard, but they can't get rid of them because they're in a union. It's breaking the back of that city. This is to do with the phenomena of the government organizing itself at taxpayers' expense. You're also not right about your your, your claim that uh, public employees earn less than private employees in the same professions. That's that's actually no longer true. It used to be. What's um, your think source that, on that? Uh, my source on that is actually something that I believe I heard at Netroots Nation, which is that um, the public unions were making an average of 80, uh, I think 20% more than private sector employees in the exact same profession, which is one of the reasons why the people of Wisconsin resented the fact that they had to pay out money out of their taxpayers, out of their pockets, to support public employees who were making more than they were in the same profession. Well, I have to agree so, with you. The, the latest data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, on 09 shows that government, government, federal government workers make about 5% more than private sector workers on average. And what about in the state level? Uh, that I don't have that information. Okay. Well, I think that it's it's at least at parity. I believe they make more when you take a look at comparable functions, public and private. Um, and does, uh, and there's, a, there's a lot of resentment over that. That local teachers make nine percent uh, less than the average private sector uh, uh, education uh, teacher, so it, it varies. I think. No, no, actually, I don't think John that's question. even true. I think, I think private the private school teachers make less than public school teachers, if I'm no, not mistaken. The Bureau of Labor Statistics I, disagrees with you. Well, they, they're probably <laughs> looking at it as a national average. I think in Massachusetts they make less, and we, you could probably to get a real accurate figure, you could go state by state. But the, but the point I'm making here, Patrick, is this is not against public servants. They were fine without the unions. And, in fact, almost 50% of the members of the public union in Wisconsin at AFSCME seem to indicate that they agree with me in that they dropped out of their public union as soon as they had the opportunity to do so. And it's not about an attempt or a conspiracy, if you will, by cities and towns to penalize public employees. I don't think that's part of this. Uh, public employees, it's an honored tradition that goes all the way back to the founding. No one is suggesting that we get rid of public employees. No one is saying we should go to no government. And as far as Republicans wanting to defeat Democrats, the same thing could be said about Democrats wanting to defeat Republicans. Oh, really? I remember the election. Oh, yeah. I remember wow. the election of 2004 and George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and John Ashcroft and all of those people that were to be destroyed. Yeah, I think that we could say that the Democrats wanted to completely stop the Republicans and, and not let them get any level of power in Congress and in the executive branch, yes. But th th there's and no that's Democratic strategy to eliminate their funding No, there sources. was a plenty of Democratic strategies. It was Same very, ones. very, what very sophisticated. I interviewed a, a congresswoman from New York City, uh, Holtzman, Elizabeth Holtzman, who yeah. was part of a group that was that brought impeachment articles against George Bush, and she was one of almost 30 impeachment con uh, attempts against George Bush. Now this was part, and she was part of a general group that was trying to do this, and she talked about it on my show in a very coordinated way. But so I yeah, there was. 
strategies to re, to yeah, eliminate the strategy the to, funding to impeach George Bush for Republican candidates. What, what no, sources? I just they try to my source is a concerted and strategic effort to impeach George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and a bunch of other people. Ironically, they'd always leave off Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice. I wonder why. I interviewed several of them. The Republican Party. The Republicans are trying to remove the financing base of the Democratic Party. Are you saying that the, that the Democrats are trying to remove the financing base of the Republican Party? And if so, what base? Well, your, your evidence that the, Demo, that the Republicans are trying to do this is because of a general uprising, if you will, and I mean that in the American sense, electorally, against public unions. You view that as motivated by this desire to remove all of the contributions that Democrats get from these monopolies. Yeah, that and, and also compare the attack on lawyers, too. What about our trial lawyers are, are, are overwhelmingly Democrat, Patrick? That's right, and, and the Republicans have consistently tried to, to uh, attack yeah. the trial lawyers and, and remove a, uh, what they call tort reform, which, is, which actually isn't, but to remove the income that trial lawyers can earn and, and donate some to the Democrats. That's been another part of this strategy. Well, and the tort lawyers, of course, use their enormous wealth and their, power, their lobbying powers to get more money from the party that they elect, that being the Democratic Party, and they're involved with enormous corruptions, as we've seen from some of these malpractice lawsuit settlements and other issues. So, Why is you know, that we can, uh, how do you, how because do you because you, when you have when you have the government pass certain laws or put certain little pieces of code into a law that's being passed by Congress that helps your industry, and that's definitely the case with tort lawyers. Then that you could you might call that corrupting, and you have a whole industry that can crop up around one of these new laws. So they're in the business of. Uh, can you name one of those laws that was written by a Democrat and not a Republican? Oh, you mean you're saying Republicans are supporting tort lawyers? No, I'm saying Republicans slip things into laws too to to benefit specific corporations. Well, I mean, we we could look we could go back and have Jack Abramoff on the show again, and he said that both sides were doing this. Okay. My point, is, and he he did give many right. examples of both sides doing so it, and they both both sides okay. do it. So that the point is that your, your point that the tort lawyers are getting little things slipped in, so so they yeah, can make the more tort money lawyers are getting the tort lawyers have lobbyists who are getting little things slipped in, and they're big Democrat donors, and the Democrats do this because they get a lot of money for it. Yeah, I did and say that. So do the Republicans. And if you want, and if you and if you, fine, I'm just but you're you're making it look okay. like this is some kind of a Republican conspiracy. I'm saying that both sides have their little special interests that give them a lot of money. The problem is, the difference is that when you have public employees who have to do this by monopoly, it's it's basically it's a uh, it's you know it's not it's one thing if both sides have their corporations and both sides do. We know Goldman Sachs tilt, tilts heavily toward the Democrats, what? and we know that Barack we know that, that Barack Hussein Obama got more corporate money in 2008 than any candidate in history. Yes, that's so true. we know that both but sides get corporate year, donors, though. and we know that the CEOs of no, not this year because they think they'll lose. And we know that both uh, that corporations, uh, by, certainly corp, the corporate um, infrastructure, if you will, the corporate. Um, institution is conservative because it's privately owned capital, but corporate heads, I would argue, are at least as liberal and as democratic as they are Republican. And they've given just as often, and we've had this conversation hundreds of times. Well, we, we can have we it again. Have. We, we have had this conversation, and that was before we began to, to see people like Edelman uh, single handedly prop up Newt Gingrich yeah. and, or George and Soros the Soros single handedly. Uh, so and by the way, they're not corporations, they're individuals. But uh, you know, we, there are about five corporations. 
Yeah, but well, the, the Edelman is an individual co- donating money out of his own bank account, and which, as which his wife generates. So is George Soros. So is George Soros, who also That's- generated it from his corporations, which have been indicted in about three countries. Now the point is, Patrick, they have. that I haven't heard that. You haven't heard about – he's not allowed to go to Great Britain because of his manipulation of the pound sterling. He was indicted in 2003, March 2nd, Great Britain. He was also indicted by the Czech Republic for manipulating their currency. He has been he – he won't go into – he won't step foot in those countries. Check that out. Okay. Anyway, the point okay. – thank you very much. Okay. Anyway, the point is that the, you have corporations who are supporting both sides – the Democrats don't need monopoly control over the government to get forced contributions from unions. They can compete with Republicans on the corporate level. They can get corporate money. They already do. And they can do it by offering a bill of, of an agenda that appeals to people, not just corporations, but individuals. The idea of them getting monopoly money from people who have to give them money, whether they like it or not, by law, is something that that is un-American, I would argue. And uh, I think that the people of Wisconsin seem to – the good people of liberal Democrat Wisconsin seem to agree with that. Anyway. Obviously they did, but I I wasn't quite – I didn't quite follow your reasoning there. Could you go through that again? When an employee is hired by by a government, whether it be the state of Wisconsin or whether it be a community – they have to, in many states, in most states, by law, because of laws that were passed, have a portion of their paycheck taken out in the form of dues. They don't have a choice. And then the union, which is a public entity, then turns over the, that money or a percentage of it, the political percentage, to politics. And I think that indica- and I think statistics indicate that probably at least 90 percent, probably more of that money goes to either the Democratic Party or Democratic candidates for office. Now, the public employee has no say in that. Yeah. They ha- at least now they do in Wisconsin, and they've spoken pretty loudly. But before that, they had no say. Now, now this isn't to say that a public employee as a person can't donate to whoever they want. They can and should. You know, that's, fr- that's freedom. This is a deal in which... These public corporations, which are funded by public monies, have a monopoly on public sector uh, employees who have to join the union. And they then donate money to candidates who then represent them when they're elected. You know, it's just like the way corporations work, Patrick, except with corporations it's not done by force. It's not done by law. In this case, you have to have, you have Let's say a public sector corporate, a public sector union elects, I don't know, a local state rep, state senator, congressman. They then they then have someone in office whom they contributed to, who does their bidding. And you can yeah, say the same true. thing for unions, that but happens. the difference yeah. is yeah. the difference is that when you have the government itself, essentially, because that's what public sector employees are, they are the government. They're public servants. When you have them electing people and doing it not even voluntarily but by force because of the use of laws to then represent them and improve not only their bottom line, which means 
their pensions, their health insurance, and we know that, for example, in Wisconsin, the public union's health insurance company had a monopoly in that all municipalities had to buy their insurance for their employees from this one private company run by the public unions, okay. and it was a ripoff. Well, go, go the, continue uh, on with your, with your logic there, the side issue. Yeah, that, that basically what happens is that the government itself is electing people to represent itself. Okay, all right. And that is a conflict of interest. It's been a conflict of interest going all the way back to the days of Rutherford B. Hayes, and I don't care if it's Democrat or Republican or what. And I don't think the people of Wisconsin care either. Okay. Because most of them are Democrats. It's a liberal democratic state. Okay, I, I, this I can isn't even a point. Yeah, okay. I, I, I understand. Um, and I, I, see the, I see the logic there, and I completely understand. I'm not, I'm not sure I... I agree with it on, on, on your logical terms. I don't agree with it on the practicality terms. And the, and the reason why I don't agree with it on the practicality terms is that on the other side, <clears throat> you have large corporate interests and their associations like the Chamber of Commerce who have enormous amounts of money that they take from us uh, in, in, in fees and purchase prices, etc. Many of those are contractors to the government, and, when, and even the ones that aren't contractors to the government, they use a, a portion of that without any permission from their stockholders. In fact, they have fought laws to, to give their stockholders the power to say whether they should have this permission to, to literally own and operate members of Congress, members of the state legislatures, and, and governors, so they do the same thing. And then those people get into office, and you have the government writing the rules for the corporations that do business with the government so the corporations can, make, can take more money from the taxpayers to give it back to the government to write better rules for the, so the corporation can take more money yet from the taxpayers. So what we have is that money talks on all various sides, and this is why I say that we need to get the money out of politics. We need to get rid of this whole idea that money equals votes. We need to go to a system much like England has, where you have six months of campaigning and an absolute cap on what anybody can spend as well as what, what they, can, they can give. Because both sides do it, all sides do it. It just so happens that the corporations have uh, at least ten times, if not more, money than the, uh, the unions do because they're getting it There's many more corporations and they're getting it from, from, from us. They're, they're, they're stealing it from us in, in, uh, like <clears throat> in fees. They're stealing it from us in overpriced services that, that they then get the government to require that we have to buy from them, like cable television and things like that. They're stealing it from, uh, from f some secret fees in our 401Ks. They're stealing it by stealing our houses in illegal, um, in, in illegal foreclosures. And they also pay members of the government to see to it that the law enforcement agencies in the government don't prosecute them from stealing from us. So right, we know about that. We know about that from Attorney General Holder. None of the bankers have gone to jail. And, and yeah, thanks to Attorney General Holder and Mears, they haven't investigated them. But, Patrick, that, look, that's you, right. yeah, and you and I can debate you know, whether or not money should be in politics. Uh, you know, I'm talking here about a very specific phenomenon, which is the public sector itself organized by itself and representing its own interests politically, yeah, which is a corrupting thing. And now, as far as corporate... Yeah, and as far as corporations go, you know, you could make you could make the case there's corporations on both sides. They buy oh, up both. Well, yes, oh, yeah. there okay. are, Patrick. Sorry, they're unions. I thought we were talking about just unions. No, we're talking about corporations. Yeah. Unions are pretty much 90, 95% of the Democratic side, at least the public unions are. Private sure. unions, by the way, are not necessarily. I remember when uh, here in Boston, when I was a member of the, t the uh, Local 24 Hotel Restaurant Bartenders Union, 
uh, Dominic Bozzato, the head, is a shop head. He came out and endorsed George H. W. Bush for president over Dukakis. Oh my God! You should have heard the screams. <laughs> People name, were like Dominic rolling Bozzato. with rage. What? Great name too for a union. Yeah, it was. Uh, it, was it was great. President. He was a tough guy too. You should have seen. Talk about a thick neck. <laughs> oh my God! But you should have heard the shrieks of rage. From the left, I mean, they went into they went into a catatonic state over this. And, this and what, why did he do that? Just out of curiosity. I don't think he really knows. Actually, okay. he just did, and and it was, it created this. And by the way, it was followed by the the Massachusetts uh, the Boston Patrolmen's Association also decided to throw in with George H. W. Bush. They had a grief. They probably had some kind of a beef with Michael Dukakis as governor. Well, I would guess. Police unions have a tendency to be Republican. Well, I don't know about that. Well, but I do. Right. And it, I haven't tendency. seen I haven't seen that around here. I mean, this was a very uh, abnormal situation. I think they had a labor dispute with Michael Dukakis, and it was a matter of revenge, is what that was about. Okay. But Patrick, the point is yeah. that unions, I mean, uh, pr- private uh, corporations, they have influence on both sides. We could argue whether or not that's healthy. It probably, in many cases, is not healthy if they're getting special laws passed. But they don't have the force of government, literally. Unions do. They cannot force someone to buy cable TV. They cannot tax you. They can, you know, they can't, uh, they can, and if they can, it's because they're in bed with the government at some level. The government is, use, you know, they're using the government or the government's using them somehow. And, uh, and there's a difference. It's just, you know, we could talk about reforming corporate well, we contributions. Could, but we only have 20 seconds. <laughs> okay, but it's a whole different subject. Anyway, Patrick, we shall return, God willing, tomorrow at the usual time, which is 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Yeah. Check out our, our blog site, fairnessradio.com. Contact Barry Farber, Patrick. Put it, get us on the show. Yes, and uh, tomorrow we're going to have uh, Bruce Dierenfield. We're going to talk about school prayer. And Dave Johnson didn't make it today. He's still up in the air someplace, so maybe he'll be with us later in the week. Good night, everybody. Okay, good night, everybody. <laughs>